MSW Media. a glass, sit for a spill, it's time to have some fun, let's do a little thinking, some picking and a drinking, but this is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. We've been having uh, story time on this show during quarantine intermittently. Uh, last episode we had uh, Aisha Tyler was on the show, uh, but before that we had a couple, uh, some story time, and, and today we're going to pick that up a little bit later in the episode. I'm going to tell you a story that uh, happened in Georgia a few years back that involves my late brother Brian, a 30-pound bronze ram's head, uh, the band R.E.M., and a river. Uh, I'm also going to provide a list of R.E.M.'s 10 best albums paired with American wines chosen by some of the country's leading wine experts. So we got that happening. Um, this th- I'm recording this on April 6th. It's going to go up on the 7th. But on this day, April 6th, 1993, 27 years ago, the debut studio album by the American rock band Tool was released. That album's called Undertow, and that came out 27 years ago today. Great album. You'll probably recognize, most people probably recognize this song. We can drink forever. This is what we're drinking with Dan Dunn. Maynard, come on. Anyway, I bring this up because uh, people that listen to the show regularly know that Maynard is a friend of the show, and he uh, hit me up and said he wanted to come on the show, so we're going to be doing that uh, in the very near future. Sometime in the next couple of weeks, we're gonna, I'm going to do a remote interview with Maynard James Keenan, so stay tuned for that right here on What We're Drinking. I want to start off with a few things I've been drinking during quarantine. I think a lot of people have been drinking during quarantine. And since uh, Maynard makes wine, I figured we'd start off with a wine. Uh, not one of his, though. It's a rosé. I drank this on Sunday. And I enjoyed it so much that it moved me. The wine moved me to the point where I ended up uh, singing into, a, into the camera and recorded it. The wine that... I drank that inspired me to sing is a it's called Vina Real Rosado. It is a it's from Rioja, which is in Spain. It's a 2019 $15 a bottle, okay? Um, made with uh, Garnacha, Tempranillo and Viora grapes. Uh, it is really 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 delicious. And I mean for that price point, what did I say 15, I think it was $14. And uh, it was it is delicious and I uh, I found the, you know, it had this, it looks like salmon colored and the, the nose had some stone fruit on it, like peach and apricots. 
the palate was you know it was crisp and an elegance to it a lot of a lot of fruit in there uh and but delicate a delicate wine and i think it would be great with fish or salads or pasta or whatever you got stored up in your house right now that you can eat again that's vina v-i-n-a real r-e-a-l rosado which is the spanish word for rosé 2019 i highly recommend it uh and then i was also drinking a little bit of whiskey and this one is uh, uh this was a canadian club 41 year old now that's not necessarily very accessible price wise it's 300 dollars a bottle but hey i wanted to you know i'm in quarantine i had to treat myself uh, you know, every whiskey has a story to tell, and you know, in in the spirits business, it's booming, and it's actually booming now during during this quarantine, and the competition is intense. So these marketing teams are working really hard to connect with consumers, and they use identity myths and a lot of storytelling. You know, we human beings are wired for narratives, and uh, a lot of these fledgling booze brands are, are trying to build awareness by crafting these compelling backstories. You see them all the time. Okay, customers can identify, they can relate to them. Not all of these yarns, of course, are spun on the level. Uh, sometimes this marketing is just make-believe. Well, not the case with Canadian Club. They don't need no stinking marketing team. It's been, it's been around forever. It's too rich, the history, to be made up. Uh, but in a nutshell, Hiram Walker founded a distillery in 1858 in Detroit. Uh, when Michigan went dry, Walker moved his operation across the Detroit River to Windsor, Ontario, and he built a town for his employees, an eponymous town for his employees, uh, for the sole purpose of producing hooch. So his club whiskey became so popular in gentlemen's clubs in the, in the States uh, that U.S. producers tried to stop him by requiring the inclusion of the word Canada on the label. But that plan backfired. It turns out Americans like Canada, and this was especially true during Prohibition when CC, as it's affectionately known, became... One of the most drink uh, spirits in America, drunk uh, spirits in America, thanks to resourceful importers, putting that in quotation marks, like Al Capone. Uh, let's not forget that damn near every single one of our grandfathers swore by the stuff. I would make the argument that Canadian Club mingled with Aqua Velva and Lucky Strikes is the scent of the greatest generation. Uh, so yeah, they got a great story, Canadian Club. The whiskey itself, though, has never really been anything to write home about. Uh, until now, so not that long ago. Uh, I mean, it took them 160 years, but the house here I'm built has finally released a stellar whiskey, and it's the Canadian Club 41-year-old. Um, it's a part of a series of premium expressions they just launched called the CC Chronicles. Uh, and this 41-year-old was anointed the Canadian Whiskey of the Year by Jim Murray in, in his Whiskey Bible, the 2019 Whiskey Bible. Jim Murray is a legend. And if Jim Murray names it the Canadian Whiskey of the Year, it's the goddamn Canadian Whiskey of the Year. So it was batched and barreled in 1977. And it's got splashes of sherry and cognac added to it for a little depth and complexity. It's lighter and smoother than you'd originally expect from a whiskey with this much mileage on it. But like the country it hails from, Canadian whiskey usually goes out of its way to not offend. It's easy drinking. Uh, the dominant notes on the palate here are vanilla, plum, and cedar. It's sweet, but in a good way. Not, not, that, not that overly, cloyingly sweet uh, flavor. Uh, and balanced uh, by, there's a grassy component in there to balance it out. And that comes courtesy of the rye that they use in the blend. Uh, and it finishes warm and easy. So if you can get that Canadian Club 41-year-old, if you got $300 to spare, 
I say do it because it's delicious. Okay, everybody's streaming. Uh, we were all streaming uh, during the during this pandemic. I am. So the other night, I was looking for something to watch. I wanted something light, lift my spirits. We're all kind of looking for that stuff, right? And uh, so I'm, I'm flipping through the movies, and I see the film Yesterday by Danny Boyle, the director Danny Boyle, did Train Spotting and among other films. And, uh, you know, if you're not familiar, this is a movie that uh, basically it's a kind of a crazy premise where there's a freak occurrence and one man ends up being the only guy left in the world who's ever heard of the Beatles. Okay. And he's happens to be a musician. So he sort of adopts the music as his own and we goes from there. So I'm thinking, you know, this would be a good movie to watch. And I watched it and it really bothered me bothered me i was the movie made me angry and i really heard that from a lot of people so i was like what, what what's going on here so i reached out to my my good buddy my old editor at playboy scott alexander and i asked him if he'd seen it and he said yeah i said what you think and he said uh i liked it i couldn't believe it so i invited scott to chat with me about this movie uh, and we got on the phone and i recorded it for this show here so here's scott and i debating the artistic merits of the film yesterday. Yesterday All my troubles seem so far away Oh, isn't that a song that I can't keep playing more of without getting universal music up my ass? But it is a beautiful song. Uh, Scott Alexander, you there, buddy? I'm here. I'm here, Dan Dunn. Good. Good to hear your voice. Here Good to see you. your face on the Zoom. We're yeah. Zooming right now. We are Zooming uh, big time. Let's so, see any face. That's right. It, it's good. It's good. So I want to jump. Even your face. Even my ugly mug. So I want to jump right in here. Let's. With the, I want to get into this thing about yesterday. So uh, in case you don't know, yesterday envisages a world in which this uh, singer-songwriter, he's bad, named Jack Malik, played by a guy named Himesh Patel, he gets hit by a bus. At the same time, there's some freak cosmic glitch that plunges the whole world into darkness for, I don't know, like 12 seconds or something. And he wakes up, and he's in this parallel dimension in which the Beatles never existed. And he alone is the only person that remembers their music. Now, this is a dopey premise that I think could have worked. I like the idea that what if you could become famous for something someone else did— but I don't think it works. And before you jump in, Scott, I'm going to tell you first and foremost why I don't think it works is it was written by, it was a collaboration between Danny Boyle, director, who I like, and Richard Curtis, uh, who writes a lot of uh, rom-coms, British rom-coms. Richard Curtis hogs the mic here. I think we can say that. And he, he also wrote Love Actually, which is one of the most treacly pieces of shit ever made. I despise Love Actually with the intensity of a hundred sons. So I'll start from there. Now you go ahead and tell me what you liked about. Well, that. So I've amazingly uh, enough, not seen um, love. Actually, I've made it this far into my adult life without uh, oh, having been subjected I, to that. And I, I'm so jealous count of myself you. lucky. Yeah. Uh, any movie he, that he can did, make uh, any movie that can make did. Liam Neeson a wuss. Liam Neeson is the big giant <laughs> honking <laughs> pussy in, in love actually. And that just can't be, that can't be Scott. All right, go ahead. 
uh, he also wrote Four Weddings and a Funeral, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah. You know, it's a it's a, it's a well executed romp for what it is. It's well executed, yeah. and that's I guess precisely the way I thought about it yesterday. I went into yesterday being like, huh. I love the Beatles. I've loved the Beatles for a very long time. They're very dear to me. Um, what a wacky premise. It wasn't like I was ready to see some masterwork. I wasn't expecting, uh, you know, fireworks to shoot out of my butt. But uh, I, I sat down and I sort of gave myself the movie. I was like, this is cute. This is nice. I feel good. I'm enjoying the Beatles music. This really gets to the heart of like, people are truly touched by the Beatles music. And I think what it does, even if it's not a great movie underneath it all, what it's saying is if this was gone from your life, wouldn't your life be so much poorer? Okay. All right. Well, let's go to the Beatles music. Now I was thinking about this and why, but I love the Beatles too. Probably my favorite band of all time. Again, what bothered me is I feel like they're using the Beatles music to prop up what is otherwise a just unremarkable rom-com. And I didn't like that. Um, but the thing about the Beatles, the way they handle the music, I think, in this movie is it's like this trump card they keep playing, right? But we're never invited to really discover the music. It's just presented as this irrefutable fact that these songs that were written 50 years ago are going to be embraced by the entire modern world as the greatest music ever written. And the other thing they do that really bothers me, they go for the greatest hits, right? If you're going to do like, oh, what are the greatest Beatles songs ever? These are the ones that are in here. But the way they, they juxtapose... Yeah, they didn't do... Uh, they didn't go yeah, for they a Wild like, Honey Pie. Yeah, Wild you know? Honey Pie was not in there. <laughs> yeah, like track 15 on the White Album's not in there. But And the other thing is the juxtaposition of the movie, I found it to be incredibly clunky. Like It's like, I want to hold your hand is followed immediately by Hey Jude. Now... There was an entire evolution of the Beatles that happened. It's almost like two different bands right. that happened between that song and this song. Sure. But it's just like, oh, boom. Okay, yeah, they're all they're all just throw them all in there together. And maybe I'm overthinking this. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know if you've if you've let me know if you've considered this. Have you considered that you're a uh, curmudgeonly uh, <laughs> man who doesn't want people to have nice things? I, I've t- <laughs> Totally considered that. I, in fact, so, I'm also. I'm here's what a curmudgeon I am. Making sure that's in the conversation. Here's what a curmudgeon I am. I'm actually mad at myself for not liking this movie because I'm like, you know, because right. I, I feel like a dick because it's it's like a it's it's not a movie that's going to make you anybody really but me uh, angry. Like most people, this would be a nice diversion. You go, oh, okay, we can get to listen to Beatles. It's a rom com. They fall in love at the end. It's all some good. Some of this is like. I've started to set my expectations so low for every movie that like it makes everything better. It's my very Zen, like low expectations game. Like I went into Avatar years ago and I was like, in 10 minutes of the movie, I was like, I know exactly what's going to happen in this movie. I know who's good. I know who's bad. I know who seems good. It's going to turn out to be bad. I know who seems bad. It's going to turn out to be good. I know exactly what's going to happen. And I was like, that's fine. Like, take me away for three hours, okay. James Cameron. I will give you my brain. And it was fun. And I and I enjoyed myself. I teared up at the right moments. And if I had stayed cynical and had that, I, I, I just, I, I literally gave in. I, I gave this kind of, con- usually it's an unconscious, a really good movie. You have no choice but to suspend your disbelief. And sometimes you just have to say, okay, I'm going to flip that switch for you myself. And I did exactly that with yesterday. No, and, and I, I get it. it. And trust me, there's a lot of, you know, you have to turn off that pedantic part of yourself, I think, because there's a lot of things. If I, I stopped myself from going further, I, because I, at one point I started going, well, wait a minute. 
Now, if the Beatles didn't exist, then I started sort of extrapolating out, like, but then this would, Oasis, you know, well, I, oh, they actually, oh, never mind. Well, I, I guess we're already giving spoilers away. That happened. But there's so many things that wouldn't have happened that probably still did in this world. And then there was other oh, things. Yeah, there was some other timeline that's too complex to even think you about. You can't happens. do it. If yeah. It was... don't happen. Someone else happens in a different way around the same time. I mean, they were part of an explosion uh, out of sort of early rock and roll into the kind of psychedelia of the later 60s. I mean, they they were the transition, you know. What do you think the of sweetness this? sweetness of the late Beatles. What do you think of yeah. this? And I know, again, this is one of those ones where I beat myself up for not, Maybe I'm maybe I'm just being too callous here, but what did and again we've already established spoilers out the ass here. What about the scene when he goes to see John Lennon, who's now alive, and he never was again, in the Beatles? It was Beatles. like porn. It was like, should I be watching porn? Probably not. Do I want to watch porn? Yes, I do. Do I want John Lennon to be alive and like painting in a seaside village somewhere? You know, yes, I do. I he's a beautiful soul they what they didn't deal with what it wasn't was a john lennon biopic where it was like here's the really messed up sides of john lennon and here's the sweet side it really only dealt with the sweet side but that's all i wanted to see and i you know that was moving to me that scene what they go see all right so what you're if i'm hearing you what i thought was crazy the scene i thought was obnoxious was the songwriting contest that was like that was the point oh i'm so (laughs) glad you bring that up because first of all would it would seriously like in what universe would a crowd full of Ed Sheeran fans pick the long and what that Ed Sheeran song that he wrote was pretty good and they would have picked Ed Sheeran because they're at a fucking Ed Sheeran concert and they're backstage like that's just them's the rules you're not gonna go hey you know Ed Sheeran would have kicked everybody out of the room it's pretty good <laughs> Ed Sheeran goes I can't yeah. even don't even vote that's how good it was first of all I like the long and winding road there's a hundred Beatles songs that I would have if I was in a songwriting contest, yeah, that are better songs, songs. but just the idea that they just, everybody just throws down. Oh, can't do better than that. Oh, well forget it. That's a perfect song. Well, I hated Kate McKinnon's Phil Spector springs all over. Kate McKinnon's character was just one giant honking cliche of the music industry. She was wasted. She was so wasted in that role. Like she's so brilliant. And that was not a, not a meaty enough role for her. Not, and yeah. again, I think this all goes back to Richard Easy, Curtis. Easy, low-hanging fruit. Richard Curtis, man, that's what he does. I Here's what I think, Scott, because I like this segment. And I'm, I am I don't want to subject you to this, and, and please, I, I only do it if you think you can handle it constitutionally, your, your body. Watch Love Actually... And then we'll get back on. Oh, and then really? we'll get. Then we'll get back on there, and we'll talk Do about. We have Love. to watch Bridget Jones' diary after that. You watch Love Actually, and then we'll play the Liam Neeson drinking game while we discuss it. We did create Scott and I created a thing called the Liam Neeson drinking game. Uh, that I probably should right after this segment, I should probably do a little bit of the Liam Neeson drinking game just so everybody. Now yeah. here's here's the thing, Richard Curtis. You know he gets points off for writing Love Actually, but doesn't he get points added for writing? Mama Mia, here we go again. <laughs> I mean, what did he write that's good? Notting Hill was okay. Four weddings in a I didn't I didn't love Notting Hill. Four weddings in a funeral, I thought was it was funny, and I I thought it was a a well made rom com. What it was okay. So if I am hearing you, correctly, he also he also wrote uh, he wrote Bean, <laughs> the the British comedian guy. Yeah. I think we Mr. all Bean, identified here the problem is Richard Curtis. If if Richard Curtis was not involved in this movie, because again, I think it could have worked. I when I first heard of it, I was like, this is an interesting premise, you know, like 
but it just was handled yeah. and and I was never invested in the romance because I I knew every you know obviously every rom-com they're going to get together yeah but there was never any like she was just kind of Lily and the, Alan, movie, the movie the movie has the the movie's existence mirrors the singer who's it's about like he's a mediocre dude who can't quite get ahead and then he then he gets transported to a world where there's no Beatles songs and he's like oh I've got the Beatles songs to rely on I can push the Beatles button all the time for people and they'll go whoa whoa and that's what the movie does the movie's just a mediocre rom-com and every so often it pushes the Beatles button you're like yeah and it's like it's it's ineluctable what it is it's a testament to the power of the Beatles music to move us and I don't think the premise of it never happening because then we wouldn't have the association, but the fact that we have the association, the association is huge and deep. And that's sort of uh, sort of what it's sort of marveling at. Sort of just standing the Beatles up on a big stand like Mount Rushmore and being like, man, those guys, are, man, that's the movie. Well, one other thing I need. They should have just called it, man, the Beatles oh. are so good. That's what they should have called. Man, it. well, I'll tell you one other thing that it bothered me, really bothered me in the movie was when they when he played, he did like a pop pop punk version of Help on it and it's a, it, uh, oh, I any movie yeah. whenever they take a song and they try to punk it up, but like punk right. like Avril Lavigne punk, you know, and the whole crowd's like, "Woo!" Yeah, and they're like gross. they're like gently moshing, you know, like, "Let me bump into you." And I'm like, "Get the fuck out of here, man." Sorry. Right. Attractive uh, moshing. Like if uh, you've been in an actual mosh pit, there's sweat and blood and teeth. Like, and, uh, and you, you can, you can cut yourself on those teeth. If you can, kidding. you can. I, uh, well, Scott, I appreciate you weighing in on this and, and, you know, I, I, anybody out there, if you want to go watch yesterday and then hit me up at the imbiber on the social media and tell me. It's a wonderful, sweet movie. This is the thing. In the time of isolation the time of being away from people it's a movie about everyone feeling the same thing together it's a very good antidote for these these dire and dark times and so you definitely should watch it and tell dan dunn what a dum-dum he is although scott i'm going to play you out i'm going to play you out with this one as requested Hey, it's Aisha Tyler. And before he was known as Podcast Dan, he was known to me and so many others as Puka Dan. And Puka Dan, forever shall he be. Oh, Aisha Tyler. I love her. Thank you for that. Uh, As promised, I'm going to have a little more story time here on the show. Uh, the last story that I was telling involved my brother Brian and my book American Wino that sprung from um, a trip I took around the country in the wake of my brother's drowning death in 2010. Um, and uh, I had his ashes with me in a mason jar, and I see my brother and speak to my brother all along the way. So this part of the story, and I, and I apologize for jumping around, but hey, what the hell? It's my show. Uh, This part of the story that I'm going to tell you takes place in Georgia, and I think I'll just uh, jump in right there, right near, right now. Let me take a little sip of the water, and then we'll jump in. It was one of those roadside antique shops you find in places that are just far enough from a city to be considered the country. This one happened to be in northern Georgia, right at the beginning of the Appalachian foothills. It was a good little spot, and for reasons I'm not entirely clear on, I purchased a 30-pound bronze ram's head there. 
all the items I could have bought at White County's largest consignment store, why did I choose a giant metal effigy of a farm animal? I'm not sure. But I'm fairly confident it has something to do with my budding case of biopsychotric tia arbiosa. This is the technical term for what happens to your brain when you expose it for too long to a combination of fatigue, stress, the interminable flatness of the Great Plains, and a diet rich in donuts and Arby's. Then combine that with running over the occasional small house pet. Hey, someone has to keep Arby's in business. So basically, when humans spend too much time behind the wheel, shit gets real weird. It's been documented. Sal Paradise didn't split for Mexico because it was prudent. Hell, he nearly died of dysentery down there, and it would have served him right. But see, all that time on the road drove him to it. That, and he was still pretty busted up over losing Terry and her kid. Plus, Dean Moriarty was this vortex of duende. He says, let's go to Mexico. You go to Mexico. You just do it. State of grace. Muskrat love. Excalibur, man. Originally, I named the ram's head Sauti Nakuchi, after the village I thought I'd purchased it in. It was only after I got home that I discovered that the Nakuchi Village Antique Mall is actually located about three miles northwest of Sauti Nakuchi in a tiny town called Helen, Georgia. Now, I couldn't very well change the ram's head's name to Helen, not unless I wanted him to get teased incessantly by all my other weird collectibles. For instance, Pancho Sanzabelt, which is a shellac-dead frog from Mexico, has been made to appear like he's playing the congas. He can be especially vicious. So after much deliberation, and by that I mean three glasses of wine, I decided to call my ram's head Michael Stipe. This, of course, is also the name of the lead singer of the greatest rock and roll band Georgia has ever produced. R.E.M. is responsible for one of the three songs that never fail to make me think of my brother Brian. According to R.E.M. bassist Mike Mills, Night Swimming is about the times in the early 1980s when the band and their friends used to go skinny dipping after the clubs would close in their hometown of Athens. As nostalgia triggers go, I realize it's a bit on the nose, but I've found these things often are. For instance, every time I hear leaving on a jet plane, I'm reminded of my Aunt Louise the one who died on the Pan Am flight that terrorists blew up over Lockerbie, Scotland, in 1988. Even now I get sad just recalling my story about Aunt Louise and how she lost her imaginary life just so that I could get out of taking a difficult art history final. In those days, I was a virtual serial killer with a focus on the family. By sophomore year of college, I'd killed off at least four grandmothers, a cousin or two, an uncle in a Fort Meade helicopter accident, and of course, poor Louise— I now realize that the only reason these tales were remotely credible was that the actual rubble and destruction in my life made them look in proportion. It's hard to tell when a kid's lying about his dead aunt when his real family is dropping like flies. Okay, so the ram's head. It was a cold, sunny morning in November. I parked alongside the Chattahoochee River near Helen, Georgia. I found a beautiful spot filled with lots of tall trees. My guess is they were pine trees, but I'm not sure. Uh, dendrology is not my thing. And yes, I googled that. Uh, the river was running strong, though. So I listened to night swimming and surprisingly didn't cry. Not a single tear. It's usually automatic. So I listened again. Only this time I went and grabbed the mason jar with Brian's ashes in it out of the center console of my, my truck. And I brought it down so he could see it, too. That did it. And I wept like a Best Actress winner. So I'd pulled off the road to shoot up on raw sentimentality, which is a risky proposition for neurotics like me. Reminiscing makes me uncomfortable. 
It's a gateway drug to self-loathing. On an intellectual level, I understand that grief is a perfectly normal and natural response to loss in the same way that I recognize indictment and arrest are perfectly normal and natural responses to crime. Still, I find myself ashamed or uncertain about the way I process pain in the same way no one in their right mind thinks the law enforcement system in the United States is a universally or even occasionally impartial instrument. And no amount of good cops you put on the street will change that. So I hope you'll pardon me for rolling my eyes when I pull myself over for driving while emotional. I look back at losing my brother, my girlfriend, or my dog and alternately scold myself for taking so long to get over them and revile myself for being some kind of zombie robot sociopath for not being more broken up about them, agonizing over whether or not I'm agonizing properly. It's a well-worn rabbit hole for me, given my ill-starred existence thus far. Half the time I worry that people are going to look at me and think I'm so full of shit my eyes have turned brown. Half the time I want to punch those same people for even entertaining the possibility. Luckily, the one thing that doesn't scare me is actually being full of shit. I've known that I'm full of shit for a very long time. It's pretty much the one thing I'm comfortable with in life. I'm grateful for the fact that on the occasions I've had uncontrollable crying jags when listening to the three songs that remind me of my dead brother, no one else has been around. Next to that river in North Georgia, I just let it go and bawled. When night swimming was over, I switched to another R.E.M. song. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. I played that twice, too. Sang along both times. I feel fine. I feel fine. I feel fine. And after a while, I actually kind of did. Then I opened the mason jar, and I dumped approximately two tablespoons of ashes into my hand and clenched it tight. It's the end of the world as we know it. I feel fine. I waited holding on for just a minute. Be here for this. Don't rush. Now. I threw the ashes up high, ready to watch Brian atomize and float away on the breeze. The breeze, however, had other plans and blew about half of Brian back into my hair and face. Oh, hey, buddy. You smell like an ashtray. The mason jar was about half full now, or half empty, or twice as big as it needed to be. That's a line I stole from George Carlin. Okay, so while we're on the topic of REM, uh, this is another thing from the, from the book American Wino. I uh, I uh, we talked about night swimming. So night swimming is on automatic for the people, which I regard as REM's best album, just ahead of Document and Murmur. Now some purists are going to tell you that's blasphemy, but I've never given much of a half a shit about purity. Okay. I'm aware that not everyone is an R.E.M. fan, but even if you don't like the music, I think we can at least agree they have a knack for album titles. If I didn't know a single thing about the band and someone said to me, hey, would you like to listen to Life's Rich Pageant or Monster or New Adventures in Hi-Fi? I would listen to it, just to see if they were as awesome as they sound. And they are. Okay, given that one of this band's songs is about my dead brother, I think I speak as a completely impartial, unbiased bystander in this. So over the three decades that R.E.M. was making sensational music, American vintners were producing exquisite wines. So I invited a few sommelier friends, because I have sommelier friends, to weigh in on the onological treasures that share birthdays, or birth years, let's say, with R.E.M.'s finest offerings, Okay. So I don't know if you can ever get track these wines down, but make this list. It's a cool list, and I, I've got a few of them. I've, I've managed to procure a few of them. So these are the pairing suggestions with some comments from my from my sommelier friends. Um, I haven't tried all these wines, but I stand by my sources, unless they're wrong. Okay. Fables of the Reconstruction, 1985. 
Uh, Ian Blackburn, my friend of mine from a thing called Learn About Wine, Wine LA. I asked Ian Blackburn and wine from 1985, and he said, Robert Mondavi Reserve Cabernet Sauvignon, which he said, kick-ass album from a kick-ass year for California Cabernet. The album still holds up, but the wine is probably past its time. So you might want to avoid that one. Okay. New Adventures in Hi-Fi, the aforementioned album, came out in 1996. Uh, my buddy Greg Van Wagner, uh, used to be at Jimmy's, I think he might still be at Jimmy's in Aspen, Colorado. He suggested Arojo Estate Cabernet Sauvignon, Iseli Vineyard. He said he'd love to pop the cork on this bottle to celebrate uh, Hi-Fi's 20th anniversary, which we already missed, or to celebrate anything for that matter. Monster, 1994. I asked Anthony Lerner, a buddy of mine from L.A., Samoyer. He recommended a 94 Deloche Cabernet Sauvignon from the Russian River Valley. Okay? He said Strange Currencies is on Monster, right? Yes, it is. This wine is as awesome as Strange Currencies. In 1991, R.E.M. put out an album called Out of Time. I asked my friend Rosalina Pong for a suggestion. She said a 1991 Farniente Cabernet Sauvignon. Napa Valley Cave Collection. It was drinking great as recently as 2014, but it's probably run out of time, hence out of time. Green, 1988. Silver Oak Cellars Cabernet Sauvignon from the Napa Valley. My friend Mary Thompson offered that recommendation. I wonder if that one's still holding up, if any, we can do it. Uh, Reckoning, 1984, Opus 1 Napa Valley. That 84 Opus 1 is probably not going to be good anymore, but get an Opus 1 of any year if you can. It's fantastic. Uh, the seventh record on the list is Life's Rich Pageant. That was released in 1986. My friend Ian Blackburn recommended Dunn Vineyard's Cabernet Sauvignon from Howe Mountain. He said that was one of the, the 86 vintage was the one that made him want to be a wine professional. And Fall on Me inspired him to try and save the world. Again, might not be good anymore, but Dunn Vineyard's Cabernet Sauvignon from Howe Mountain for many years, good. 83, uh, they put out Murmur, and my, uh, my friend Massimo Arone uh, recommended Joseph Phelps Vineyard Insignia. 87 was Document, Anthony Lerner again, Behringer Private Reserve Cabernet Sauvignon, and then finally, back to my friend Rosalina Pong, Automatic for the People came out in 1992. She recommended Dalaval Vineyards Maya Cabernet Sauvignon. Get it. So there you have it. There's some wines for you. As I mentioned earlier in the show, I uh, had that, drank that rosé on Sunday and uh, got, a little, got a little tipsy. And to the point where I even decided to sing. I sang. I'm going to leave you with me singing in just a second. I invite you to follow me on Instagram at The Imbiber. That's the same handle on Twitter. Weigh in with comments and suggestions, please. I, I appreciate it. I want to thank Scott Alexander for joining me to debate the artistic merits of, of uh, what was the movie again? Yesterday. See, I've already forgotten about it. Um, but that's it, folks. I'm, I'm glad you joined me. I hope you're safe and staying in and quarantining and staying sane. This is tough. Tough, tough, tough. Wanna, and speaking of tough, here's me singing, and I will catch you on the next show. Accepting all I have done said, 
I want to stand and stare again Till there's nothing left and Oh, it remains there in your eyes Whatever comes and goes I will leave this side